Now this morning I want to talk about living in the big story. Living the big story, though I've learned from two previous services that I don't get to the, that theme until the last five minutes of the sermon. Uh, so that's how it goes sometimes. Um, and actually, I'll be very honest with you, the message that I had planned all week on giving this weekend, uh, on Saturday, that's my final, t- Saturday mornings when I finally tweak my messages, and in the process of, I was going to review last week's and then get into some new area uh, that uh, we haven't covered yet, but in the process of reviewing that, I felt the Lord say to me very strongly, uh, you're not done with that one yet, uh, Sima, Sima Donna, it just, uh, hey, <laughs> Okay, a couple Saturday Night Live fans are. Simadana. Uh, just simmer, just hold, be in a holding pattern. Chew on this one again, you haven't digested it. And so uh, this message is, I, I just feels as uh, really straight and clear cut and radical as a message could possibly be. If we let this one on the inside, it will disturb and confront some of our most basic assumptions about the world. Uh, and it, it will expose the ugliness of some of the most fundamental assumptions we have about the world. It may aggravate some of you, but you didn't come here, I hope, to have your ears massaged. Uh, the Word is supposed to do that, and so I pray that, that we let this one on the inside. I'm going to read the passage, one of the passages that we dealt with last week. Let this one on the inside. It will revolutionize everything. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, Put away from you all bitterness. Everyone say all bitterness. bitterness. Some of the bitterness. The unjustified bitterness, certainly. All bitterness. Put aside all bitterness and all wrath and all anger and all wrangling and all slander and all malice. Put aside all of it. Instead, Paul writes, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, As God in Christ has forgiven you. Put aside everything that doesn't look like God's stance towards you. As God has loved you and forgiven you, so you do to all people at all times and all situations. Take every thought captive to that. And if you do that, you will be, as he says in the next verse, be imitators of God, mimickers of God. Do exactly what you see God do. This is, the, this is the kingdom marching orders. Live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. And whatever does not agree with that, however it got there, put it aside. If you look at a couple other passages that come from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, something I'm going to be getting to later on this year. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Here's one way you know who the children of God are. They have this uncanny, uncanny ability to bring peace where there's hostility. They're peacemakers. A few verses later on, he tells us how to be peacemakers, at least one of the ways to be peacemakers. He says, do not resist an evildoer. Do not resist an evildoer. And the word resist there in Greek is anthistomy, which doesn't mean just step aside and don't get involved and let the person do whatever he ever wants to do. But it does mean don't respond with corresponding force and a corresponding manner. Don't become the evil that's pushing against you. I want to pray, and I'd like to have some intercessors around this auditorium who will keep me covered in prayer as the message is going forward. Raise your hand if you're willing to do that. Need a couple more. I want a strong anointing here this morning. I'm greedy for it. All right, a couple more over on this side. I need, okay, there we go. Keep me covered. Let's pray. Father, uh, 
we have one goal here. We seek first and only the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Your kingdom is all that matters to us, Lord. Don't give a hoot about religion. Don't, don't care at all about uh, building a church for the church's sake. We want the kingdom, pure, undiluted kingdom. Make us your kingdom, people. But Father, there are many things in this world, in this culture that influence us, that pollute us. Triggers get installed that keep us from hearing and allowing on the inside your kingdom. It just confronts so many basic assumptions about the world. Father, will you collapse those triggers and open our minds and open our hearts and let your spirit flow and, and wash away the filters so that we may hear this morning, hear your pure and undiluted word and let it confront us. Lord, you said, blessed is he who doesn't take offense in you. Sometimes you shake our cage and it's offensive. But Lord, help us to have hearts that are open and, and, and minds that are open to receive and be transformed by the power of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Okay. Let's start with a big story. What's going on in the world right now? What's the map of what is happening here in this world? What on earth is going on? Here's what's going on. There's a kingdom growing inside of another kingdom. Like a baby growing in the womb, there's a, a, a little kingdom growing inside a, a bigger kingdom. The bigger kingdom is the kingdom of the world. This is the dome in which Satan is king. He's the principality and power of the air, has control of all the nations, controls the entire world, John 5, 19. The dome in which Satan is king is the kingdom of the world. And partly because it's a fallen, rebellious world and partly because Satan has control of it, it's a power over world. It's a world where people try to further their own agendas by exercising power over others. And wherever you have power being exercised over others, you have power who are being squished by that power over. And so it's a world that is full of, of animosity, full of anger, full of bitterness, full of malice. And when that anger and when that malice begins to be expressed, it comes out as violence. It comes out as conflict. It comes out as warfare. It comes out as harsh words. This is the kingdom of the world. It's how the world runs. Because it's a, a kingdom where uh, people are trying to solve problems with their natural reasoning, and where every solution creates more problems, it's an ambiguous world. It's a world full of issues that don't seem to be able to re be resolved. And the kingdom of the world, being able to arrive at a, a compromise that prevents war is a major achievement. But even when you arrive at a compromise, which is the best that the politics of the kingdom of the world can do, uh, you still have animosity because no one got their whole way. But usually compromise can't be arrived yet, so people just fight one another. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a pushy world where ideas and nations and families and neighbors and, and co-workers are bumping up against one another and there's conflict and there's malice and there's anger. That is the dome in which Satan is king. That is the kingdom of the world. But inside that kingdom of the world, there's another kingdom. It's been planted in the person of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. It was planted as a mustard seed. It's not a conspicuous kingdom. It operates more covertly than overtly. And this kingdom is very different. It's the dome in which God is king. It's not a power over kingdom, but it's a power under kingdom. It exercises the power of beautiful self-sacrificial love. This kingdom always looks like Jesus Christ. This kingdom uh, is characterized by the character of God. And the people who are part of this kingdom have a love and have a joy and have a peace that passes understanding. This kingdom 
is not, doesn't share in the complexity and the ambiguity of the kingdom of the world. It's always very simple. It always seeks to replicate Jesus Christ. And whereas the kingdom of the world always involves compromise at its best, the kingdom of God operates without compromise because the people are wholly devoted to following the life of Jesus. What God is up to in the world today is growing that little kingdom, the mustard seed kingdom, the kingdom of God, growing it in the context of the kingdom of the world. And his goal is to, through the kingdom of God, love the kingdom of the world out of existence. It's sort of like if I were to have a balloon right now and I started blowing up this balloon. It's a very elastic balloon. As I'm blowing up this balloon, in the context of this auditorium, the bigger the balloon gets, the more the entire context is defined by the balloon. The balloon is the kingdom of God and this auditorium is the kingdom of this world. And as the kingdom of God grows with each and every self-sacrificial Christ-like act that we do, it's pushing out everything else in this dome. And God's goal is to have every square inch of this auditorium to be nothing but balloon. God's goal is to have the entire world be the dome in which he is king. That's what God is up to in this world. Now, if you are a surrendered person to Jesus Christ, and I'm not saying did you once a time pray a magical prayer that gave you fire insurance. I'm saying if your heart is surrendered to Jesus Christ, you're part of that dome in which God is king. You are the kingdom of God. You are the means by which that kingdom expands. You're participating in the life of the mustard seed. If you are a surrendered disciple of Jesus Christ, there is pulsating in your spiritual veins holy blood. The life of Jesus Christ is within you. You are filled with the Spirit. You are redeemed. You're the bride of Christ. You have within you a capacity to live like the natural person cannot live. You have within you a capacity to experience joy in any circumstance that the natural person doesn't have. You have within you a supernatural peace that passes all understanding that the natural person doesn't have. You have within you a capacity to love outrageously that the natural person doesn't have. You are a kingdom person. Heaven resides within you. And the main goal in life is to manifest that heaven. To manifest now what the world will look like when the kingdom of God is set up on the entire earth. You are the first fruits of creation. You've been picked ahead of time. And your one job and my one job and our one job is to manifest the first fruits, first fruits of creation. To show what heaven is like in a context that is full of hell. And the capacity to do that is within you. The problem is that in this fallen world, in the context of this kingdom of the world, there's a lot of things that work against that. We live in this world that is so full of conflict, agendas pushing on agendas, in this fallen power over world, conflict and disappointment are inevitable in life. And it's so easy for us to let that get on the inside of us. We're constantly being pushed by the kingdom of the world, and it takes vigilant uh, effort to keep that world out. In a world full of conflict and anger and malice and pushing and disappointment, the easy thing is to let the anger get on the inside. In fact, to feel righteous about the anger that gets on the inside. And we get polluted with the bitterness and the malice and the wrath and the wrangling and the anger of the world. And that suppresses the kingdom life within us. It is the main way that the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy the abundant life that Jesus Christ died for us to have and show the world. We get pushed, and our fallen instinct is to push back, and that's how we get polluted. Greg, will you come up here, please? Greg the overseer. I love this guy's name. Greg, uh, this is an overseer. Uh, Greg Foote? 
and I love this man. He's holy, righteous, godly. Not terribly good looking, but still. Uh, nice nonetheless. <laughs> okay. Now, here, here's how the thing works. Living in this world. Um, you're going along, doing the kingdom stuff, and all of a sudden, someone pushes you. And insults you. You are ugly, man. Okay. Look at this. See, look, look, look at his fist. Look at his oh, face. No, <laughs> I push him. And you want to step up, don't you? You want to, you, you want to tangle right now, right here. You, you'd like to have it out with me. You don't want to mess with a man with a scar on his face like this, man. I'm, I'm a mean dude. All right. Thanks, Greg. You can sit down. I had my push, and that was fun. Give him a hand. Right. Now look carefully at what happened. I push him, and he immediately wants to push back. It's, it's part of our nature. His amygdala just shot a chemical cocktail through his system and his heart's racing and he's going to defend himself. Now, he may have a lot of reasons for not doing that. Uh, there may be social pressure or theological pressure or whatever not to do that, but he wants to. Now, he has taken the force of my push and he's internalized it. And he wants to push back. Maybe he will, maybe he won't, but he wants to. That is the pollution of the world. He no, I now have defined him with my push. My push now defines him. And he's internalized that. The desire to push back is what creates the bitterness, the wrath, the anger, the wrangling, the slander. He wants to retaliate. He wants to have vengeance. He wants to avenge himself. He wants to respond with like force in a like manner. We all do when we're pushed. The wife pushes me, I feel like pushing back. I'm not talking physically, I'm talking with the push of ideas or the push of attitudes or the push of words. And there's a million ways of getting pushed into this world, isn't there? The boss pushes you, you want to push back. The coworker pushes you, you want to push back. The person cuts you off on the road, you want to push back some way or other. Sign language or what have you. Uh, you, you, uh, you know, your neighbor's nasty and bickering and calls the cops because your little dog got all. You want to push back somehow. Uh, we want to push against the conservatives, we want to push against the liberals, we want to push against all the bad people in the world, we want to push against the terrorists. And whether we have a way of doing that or not, and whether we actually act on it or not, is inconsequential. We're being defined by the push of the world. And we go to bed with it, as we said last week, we go to bed out with our anger, and it becomes para-anger, para-orge. It becomes bitterness. It becomes a pollutant in our life. We're defined by the conflict of the kingdom of the world rather than the kingdom of God. Every element of that, every element of that suppresses to that degree the life of the kingdom inside of us, which is why Paul says, put away all bitterness, all anger, all malice, all wrath. Purge yourself of everything that is inconsistent with the love of Jesus Christ. But, 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 it's so justified, it's so normal, it's so natural, it's so mean of you to suggest that. You see, Greg would be totally justified, wouldn't he, at pushing back at me, but see, the, the justice isn't the issue. He's a kingdom person, and there's a different way. And any element of that that we have in our life kills the abundant life of the kingdom of God within us. To live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us is to purge ourselves of everything that is inconsistent with that love. It's to walk free of all that. So what do we do when we get pushed? What do we do? Here's what Paul says. And I am just coming, bringing this verse by verse out of the Bible because this is so crucial for us. We looked at this last week. We haven't digested it. We need to chew on it again. Paul says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Don't push back. 
But take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord's saying, leave all the pushing to me. Just give it to me. Leave all the pushing to me. You, you do the opposite of what your natural fallen instinct feels like doing. Here's what you're to do. Here's your job description. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. And if your enemy is thirsty, give them water. And by enemy, they're not talking about a grouchy coworker. They're talking about someone who can put them in jail, beat them, and possibly feed them to lions. Think about that. For when you do this, Paul says, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Now he's talking there, as we explained last week, about a fire of conviction. This isn't a pain infliction thing. It's an idiomatic way of saying you will bring conviction on them. Do not, he sums it all up by saying, do not overcome evil. Don't, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Holy Spirit, help us to see this. Being overcome by evil in this passage, look at it carefully, is when we seek to do what only God is supposed to do. When we, when we have a desire to avenge, when we have a desire to repay, the evil has now defined us. When we keep score and want to balance the account on our own, we're being defined by that which we're against. We've absorbed the, the brunt of the push, and now it defines us because we want to push back. We've become the push. We've contracted the disease that is the kingdom of the world. And that urge to push back creates in us bitterness, wrath, wrangling, slander, and malice, and it squelches the beautiful life of the kingdom within us. We become the enemy we're pushing against. We become the enemy that has pushed us and has now defined us. This is why Jesus taught, Jesus taught this, do not resist an evildoer. Do not respond with corresponding force in a corresponding manner. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I'm telling you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do the opposite of what the world would expect you to do. What Jesus is, is telling us is this. When you love your enemy, it's not, not just for your enemy's sake. It's for your sake. Because the only way to keep from sinking to their level, the only way to keep from being defined by them, the only way to keep from being polluted by them is to love them, is to bless them, is to ask the question, how can I serve them? The only way to guard your heart is to not, is to purge your heart of that desire, that angry desire to retaliate. The only way to keep from being polluted is to find a way to transform the push into an embrace. So Greg, come up here again. Let's dance. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. I promise I'll be nice this time. This time I'll be pastor nice, not pastor mean. So here's Greg. So Greg, uh, he's my enemy. He's an evil guy. So he starts pushing on me, okay? So, so don't grab me. Okay, oh, he, he wants to get even. <laughs> okay, no kicking. Okay, so you push. Uh, no, push. Okay, now as he pushes, I, I want to push back. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And now we're dancing. The, the, the angry dance of the world. But see, as a kingdom person, I got to... Remember, wait a minute, Jesus says amphistomy. Don't respond with corresponding force. Don't respond with a, in a corresponding manner. What I want to do is ask the question, how can I love this guy? And thereby love myself because I'm not going to let his push define me. And so what I want to do is just kind of pull him in. I used to wrestle in high school. It wasn't very... And now I got an embrace. But see, I turn it into an embrace. 
Uh, a loving embrace, right? Yeah. All right, see, now he loves me. Now, see, the thing is this. When we do that, when we do that, we are um, making it more difficult for them to push on us. We transform the, the, the power of the push into a power of embrace. And now, instead of evil overcoming good, good overcomes evil. Good overcomes evil in my heart because I didn't absorb the push. It doesn't now define me. I haven't, let, I haven't let evil into my heart. So good has overcome evil in my heart. And when good overcomes evil in my heart, there's the possibility that good will overcome evil in his heart. Because as I, instead of responding with like force and like manner, as I, as, using the wisdom of God, turn that into an embrace, I thereby expose the wrongfulness of what he was doing. When we respond by loving our enemies, doing the unexpected thing, whether we're talking about our family or our neighborhood or on any level, we, as Paul says, we heap burning coals on their head. We bring conviction to them. Or as Peter said, we keep our conscience clear so that when we are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. We love our enemies by responding in such a way that we expose the evil of what they're doing and the wrongfulness of what they're doing, which opens up the possibility that, that, that they'll feel the hot fires of conviction and shame and possibly be transformed into something different. The contrast between our behavior and, and the response, uh, between their behavior and our response, the contrast between those two exposes the evil and puts a mirror up to their face and may lead to repentance and uh, conviction. See, here's the thing we got to realize. The person, the coworker that has it in for you, all right, who gossips about you, is constantly spreading lies about you. If you make any mistake, they, 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 they do their phone ministry and call everyone around to, to let them know about it, you know? That kind of person. Okay, for them to do that, they've got to believe that they're good and you're evil. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're the good ones, and so they feel justified doing nasty stuff to you because the story they run in their head about you is not a good story. Now, when you respond in like manner with like force and you got your own phone ministry going and you talk behind their back and you're nasty and, and whatever, all you do is lock in their perception of you. See, you just confirmed how bad you are to me. Worse than that, when you respond in like manner, you, you let them lock you in to what they're doing to you. You let them define you. You now participate in the evil that they're doing. You've sunk to their, their level. But when you respond in the kingdom way, in the Calvary way, and work to transform the push into an embrace, you heap coals of fire on their head. It's very hard to stay nasty to a person who keeps on loving you. It just takes the fun out of it. And you change their perception. You call into question their assumptions, and they begin to see, I guess that was pretty petty of me to do that. I guess that was pretty wrong for me to do that. It's like when Philip, when he's being stoned, uh, with rocks in, the, in Acts uh, chapter 7. Uh, they, they took him out of the city and they started throwing these rocks at him. And, you know, he's getting the rocks hit in the head. They were just martyring him because he was a Christian. And see, if Philip would have reached down and grabbed those rocks and started throwing back and cursing and riling, which is what people usually did when they were being stoned in the first century, if he would have done that, man, it would have made it a party. Yeah, see how bad he is. See how evil he is. See how righteous we are for doing this. But instead, Philip... Praise loudly, it says this prayer, Father, forgive these people. Don't lay this to their charge. And it's very hard to stay nasty and mean and, and mad at a person who's praying for you, praying for your forgiveness. And it brings about the possibility that they'll see, well, 
what are we doing to this innocent man, this good man? This is wrong. This is, this is evil. And possibly change their minds. It's possible that Saul, we know Saul was there when Stephen was being stoned. Possibly that planted a seed that led to Paul's conversion. We alter, we transform the enemy possibly into a friend when we respond in a kingdom way. So here's a chart of how it looks. Here's the kingdom of the world. There's somebody who's got it in for you. They do evil towards you. They push on you. You push back. Now you, their push of evil has defined you. Your push on evil uh, on them has defined them. You got two people locked in this, this, uh, this cycle, this dance of hatred. And as you push back, that confirms to them that you are as evil as they thought. And now they push you harder, which makes you push back harder, which makes them push harder, which makes you push back harder. And it goes on and on and on and on. This is the cycle of violence that has defined world history. It's why world history is largely written in, in innocent blood that, that was spilt over, over this sort of a dance, this cycle of violence. Classic case. And I encourage you to see this film if you can take it. Uh, it's Hotel Rwanda. Uh, very hard film to watch. I cried through half of it. But the story is that the British come in and, and the people of Rwanda are one culture and they get along just fine. But the British, they, they decide that the people who are lighter skinned are superior to the people who are darker skinned. So they put the people with lighter skin in charge to carry out their will. And uh, the people with darker skin, the Hutu, uh, they don't like this at all. So once in a while they'll retaliate on the people with lighter skin who are the Tutsis. Well, the Tutsis then retaliate on the Hutu, and the Hutu then retaliate on the Tutsis, and, and, and they're both getting uh, the perception that each other is altogether evil. The British finally up and leave, and by, but by that point, uh, this, go, this game's gone on long enough, so people have forgotten that once upon a time we were brothers and sisters, and now they're defined by their vengeance and hatred for one another. And the only way that you win in this uh, tit-for-tat game of the world is by trying to annihilate the enemy, and that's what happened in the early 90s. And that's what that movie's about, and it's gut-wrenching. You see, the, the, the dance goes on. The evil creates evil, which creates more evil, which creates more evil. And it goes on throughout history, over in Palestine and Israel. It's been going on for 50 years. This is why wars are never final. Throughout history, people have, have, de have declared, this is the war that will root out all evil. Sorry, folks. It doesn't work like that. It's very hard to utterly annihilate all your opponents. They just go into hiding and they, 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 they regroup. It may take a century, but sooner or later they strike back and the game starts once again. It goes on and on and on. It's why violent revolutionaries are always eventually overturned by violence. Uh, the, 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 the evil you use to get there is the evil that will eventually topple you. Jesus and Gandhi and King and others saw that there's only one way to break this cycle. And that is to refuse to participate in it by responding with love. When they push on you, instead of hating them back, you love them back. And you respond with an embrace. And the goal of this whole thing is for, to transform their push into an embrace. And now the kingdom of God has gone forward. It's the only way to end that. Whether we're talking about it in, on a global scale or whether we're talking about it in our families or with our neighbors or with a fellow church member or whatever, only love, the power of Calvary-like love, can end this diabolical dance of hatred that characterizes world history. But get this. It only works if you, in fact, have purged your heart of hatred and violence and animosity and malice and anger and bitterness. This isn't so much a behavior we're supposed to do. It certainly isn't something that solves all the questions we might have about world politics. 
What it is is a prescription for how to live moment by moment. Stay depolluted. Live in love as Christ loved you and gave his life for you. This is the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God because it looks like Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And that's the definition of the dome in which God is king. You sacrifice for your enemy, for their well-being, to hold a mirror up in front of them rather than trying to squash them. The kingdom of the world always carries a sword, but the kingdom of God only carries the cross. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of the world always tries to conquer their enemies, but in the kingdom of God, the goal is not to conquer, but to transform our enemies through the power of Christ-like love. The kingdom of God operates with power over others, but the kingdom of God only operates with power under others. That beautiful uh, servant-like, Calvary-like love that influences and changes hearts. The kingdom of the world always pushes back. It's just what the kingdom of the world does. But the kingdom of God always seeks the wisdom of God to find out how to transform the push into an embrace. Now look at If you're thinking... In terms of the world's understanding of power, if you have been indoctrinated with and are intoxicated with the world's understanding of power, that power over, that Rambo kind of I will squash my enemy and be righteous for it mindset, if that's your mindset, then you will hear what I just said, this whole thing as being weak. Oh, we're just supposed to be little weenie boys, huh? Or some of the words I've heard is, boy, that sounds effeminate. Uh, that sounds liberal. That sounds wishy-washy. That sounds unpatriotic. That sounds New Age-ish. Many words that just allow us to dismiss it. But I ask you, which part of the word of God did you think was wishy-washy and weak and effeminate? If that is, if there's any part of your brain that, that tends to file this message under that category... I, I ask you to examine your head and consider the possibility that you've been, to some degree, conditioned by the matrix, that you've, been, you've, you've bought into a lie about what power is. Because the truth of the matter is, is that everything I just said comes right out of the Word. Everything I just said is pure, undiluted gospel. It is as radical and as beautiful as it could possibly be, and it's right there. The truth of the matter is that there's nothing weak or, or effeminate, whatever that means, about this. This is the greatest power on the world. This is the greatest power on the planet. When Almighty God, the creator of the universe, flexes his omnipotent bicep, it doesn't look like Rambo. It looks like Jesus Christ dying on the cross. That's omnipotent strength. And I'll tell you this, it takes far, far more strength to love your enemy than it does to kill him. And it takes more of a man, if you will, to love your enemy rather than kill them. If you think about it, whenever someone pulls a sword, it's because they're threatened, they're scared, they can't do it on their own. You know, they have to sink to the level of the enemy. But to do what Christ did, that takes courage, that takes strength, that takes supernatural strength. That's the greatest power on the world because it's the only power that can get through the calluses of a heart and change the heart on the inside. No amount of sword yielding can possibly do that. The truth is, Holy Spirit, help us to see this, that uh, it is that Rambo, I will squish my enemy and be righteous for it mindset. It's that Rambo power mindset that is the main way that the, that the devil controls the world. Everybody cries out, I am Rambo, I am righteous, I am strong. Look at me, I am just. God's on my side. I will end evil once and for all. 
And their enemies are crying out the exact same thing. And so the mindless bloodshed goes on and on throughout all of history or the mindless gossip at your office or the mindless bickering in your neighborhood. It goes on and on and on and on. And we really believe that we become the righteous ones who are going to have a conquest over all evil. And it's not just about nations. It's about our... The only reason it's an issue with the nations is because it's an issue in all of our hearts. It's the way we think. It's the way we speak. It's, the, it's, it's our body language. It's the way we interact with our spouses, with our children, with our neighbors, with our pastor, with our congregants, with everybody. The question we've got to ask is, is there that cycle of vengeance, retaliation, bitterness, anger going on inside of us? See, we all eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We declare ourselves good, and then we declare them evil. This is the way that this is this is this is the kingdom dance, kingdom of the world dance. It's been going on, and it's why there's so much bloodshed. Eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that original sin in Genesis 3. And of course, I individually and we collectively, whatever the we is, we are the good ones and they are the evil ones, so let's squash them once and for all, and then the world will be a good place. And almost all the bloodshed in the world has been caused by people who think like that. But see, in the midst of this endless, ridiculous foolish, hopeless spiral of violence that's going on in the world, there is something else going on in the world, and it's called the kingdom of God. It's this quiet little thing. It always looks like Jesus. And these people don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We honor the prohibition because we don't make a claim of righteousness for ourselves because we know we don't have any. Rather, to the contrary, we obey our Lord who said, consider your own sin to be a two-by-four in your eye and other people's sin to be a mere speck. We don't make any claim for ourselves at all. Rather, we just seek to serve and thereby transform the world. And we refuse to participate in that mindless game of retaliation on any level. Now, this message, this message has never been popular to people who benefit from the spiral of the kingdom of the world. There are winners and there are losers. The winners in the spiral, never in history has this message of the gospel, which is the heart of the gospel, has it been popular or usually not even mentioned when people are on the upside of the battle. The reason is because to really sell out to the kingdom life, you, you have to get to where what Jesus said and what the apostle John said well, you hate the world. We're commanded to hate the world. Now, that doesn't mean we hate, you know, the earth, but it means we hate the world system, that we see, that we see the, the hopelessness, the foolishness, the, the, the pathetic waste of life that happens with this uh, evil versus evil kind of retaliating game that, that the world plays. The only way you ever sell out to the kingdom of God is when you get sufficiently disgusted with the violence in this world, with the hatred, with the animosity, the anger, it's endless. And when you see the stupidity of it, the foolishness of it, it goes on and on and on and on. And when you see all of that, then you're open to saying, is there another way of doing life? Is there another way of living, another way of thinking about things? Do I have to always be yucked up by all this mess that's going on? And now you're open to hear the words of Jesus when he says, don't enthystomy an enemy, rather transform the push into an embrace. This is why Jesus said, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are the thirsty, blessed are those who are persecuted. How can you possibly be blessed when you're being persecuted? Well, here's one thing you got going for you. You're losing in terms of the world system. And that makes you hungry for something else, you see. For us to be kingdom people, we've got to see the, 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 see clearly, Lord, help us to see how, how, uh, 
disgusting and hopeless this game that the world plays is. It's never been popular among those who benefit by the, the nature of this conflict agenda. This is why this message has never been very popular in America, and I'm not naive about this anymore. See, we in America, not everyone in America, but America as a whole, we're at the top of the world's game. Uh, we declare ourselves the winners of this. And, and uh, we need just to realize how that makes us vulnerable to fall into the matrix and accept lies. How easy it is for us to, rather than be confronted with the gospel and live this radical and beautiful different way of doing life, how easy it would be just to use the gospel to enhance our own way of living. To do basically what the world does, we just Christianize it. We need to be aware of how easy it is for us to fall into that. And while it's wonderful to feel good about your nation and, 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 and be grateful for your nation, whatever, we're not to be defined by our nation, folks. We're to be defined by Jesus Christ. Our identity is, is, is in Christ before it's in America. And so as, as, as kingdom people, we have to always be asking the question, what that is opposed to the kingdom, but is so consistent with this culture, what has gotten into my life that needs to go? Can we see the anger, the malice, the violence, and be disgusted with it, and commit to purging our life from it so that we may live in love as Christ has loved us and gave his life for us? And, and, and what I have found, and I, I, I feel like I'm in kindergarten on this, uh, I, I, but, but I, I'm in kindergarten, and I'm learning some stuff. But what I found is that when you can genuinely find all those subtle ways that you harbor animosity and bitterness and anger and vengeance and you keep a score in your head, when you wake up to that and begin to let it go, it feels so good. It is, you know, life starts to happen when you, let, when, when, when you don't hold any accounts, when you let it go. You're angry, you say it, and then you're done with it, you move on, you forgive, you, you let it go. To not... Be part of the bumper car game that, is, that, that the world calls living. It feels so good. That there is, when you begin to do that, when you just begin to let it go and you get your entire life from Jesus Christ, so everything else you just let go. You're not going to push back. You're going to ask God's wisdom to turn it into an embrace. You start to live. There's a fullness. There's a fullness of, 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 of joy that just begins to pop up and it sometimes surprises you because everything says you shouldn't be joyful, but there it is. Wow, that's a joy. And then there's this peace when everything's falling apart around you and there's so much pushing going on. There's this kind of tranquility. Where'd that come from? Well, Jesus, maybe. Uh, and, and there's this love for your enemies. It's like you really care about them. It's not just a rule that you obey, like I'm supposed to love my enemies, shucks. But rather, it's like, I really care about this person. They want, they want to see me dead, but man, I, want, I care about them. That's, that's the kingdom life starting to come up in you. That's a John 7, 39 thing where the wellsprings of living water are starting to become uncorked. You see, that life, the life of Christ, the life of the Holy Spirit, that kingdom life, that Zoe life begins to be released when we, get, when we depollute ourselves. Walk, walk, guard your heart and walk clear of all this stuff. However justified it may be, it's, it, it, it's squashing the life of the kingdom inside of you. Now, the main thing I was going to preach about today, I'll just end with it. <laughs> How do you do that? How do you do that? And the first thing I'd say is you, you can't do it by your willpower. You've got to surrender to the life of Christ and ask him to empower you uh, and then work with him and yield to that. But the second thing I, I'd say is, is just this. 
And there's all sorts of questions this raises, and I'll get to it next time I preach, uh, about like, well, you know, what about abuse issues and and things like that? Now, I'm going to get to those. But right now, just get the principle about, uh, it's about a a way of living. But here's the thing. The only way to live like this is to die to yourself, to die to living in the self-story. Everything hangs upon whether you're living in a small story or a big story. Now, just follow me for three more minutes. A small story or a big story? The small story is the story that most people live in. It's the human story. And that's the story of me. Uh, how can I get what I want? How can I get security? I want to feel secure. How do I get worth? How do I get significance? How do I get my needs met? That's the small story. That's the story most people live in. If you live in that story, you can't help but push back, retaliate, be angry, because your whole story your whole story is about you getting life, preserving life, advancing life, and so anything that threatens it, you're going to be angry about. For the kingdom people, there's a big story to live in. And it's the story of the kingdom. And this story, by story I mean the narrative framework that you live in moment by moment. How do you interpret your life? And this story is about how I fit into what God is doing in the world. I'm part of a bigger thing. And, and, and I seek first that bigger thing, and I live in that story. And that entirely changes the way you respond to things. If you live in the small story, you are going to push back, defend yourself. You're going to have to trust your own power to advance your interests and trust the power of your nation. That's what you're going to rely on. You'll exact vengeance. You'll, you'll, you'll repay. You'll push back. It's what you have to do to live in that story. But if you live in the big story... You know that you're part of a mustard seed kingdom. You anticipate that the fallen world's going to be pushing against you all the time. And you know, you understand that you only harm yourself by trying to push back like they push on you. If you live in the big story, you trust. You trust God to use your Calvary-like love to transform the world. He doesn't use anger and hatred. You know that, so you steer clear of it. If you live in the big story about what God's doing in this world, you understand that you're living in a Good Friday world. And so it often won't look like you're making any advance, but as a person who lives in the big story, you also know that Easter is coming, and you have faith in that. And so you leave things to God. If you're living in the big story, you know that God is the ultimate judge. God's the ultimate push, so whenever you feel the urge to push, you just give it to God. And you live uh, uh, free of that. You're living in the big story. You don't need to retaliate. You don't need to be angry. You don't need to have hatred, wrath, or malice. You can put away those things and love your enemies, feed your enemies, give water to your enemies, return evil with kindness and and goodness. See yourself as living in the big story. And the more you live in the big story, the more you see the pettiness of the small story, the, the more you see how in bondage you are if you live in the small story, the more you see the futility of living in the small story, that small story that always leads to that cycle of violence and all different levels, you see the, the, the stupidity of it, the silliness of it, and you're free from that. Live in the big story. Your kingdom people respond in the noble way, the Christ-like way. Don't return evil with evil. Don't return evil with good. You couldn't get a more radical message that confronts fundamental assumptions about our culture, about the world, uh, than this one. So close your eyes. And I just, I'll say two things. Number one, if you're here this morning and you're not a kingdom person, that is to say you've never really surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, I implore you to do that today. I can't guarantee that you'll want to next week. If you want to now, do it now. Up to my right and your left, uh, at the front of the auditorium, there's, there's a table, and there'll be a person there who would love to explain to you what becoming a kingdom person is all about. It's so simple and so important. For the rest of us, I just ask, I, I challenge you with this one thing. 
Will you commit, and Holy Spirit be working in our hearts right now, will you commit to letting this message in and letting the Holy Spirit work in your mind throughout today and throughout the week to reveal to you non-kingdom things that pollute you. Wrath, anger, unforgiveness, malice, bitterness. And we commit to working with the Holy Spirit to let that go. For some of you, that's going to look like forgiveness. For others, it's just going to look like talking to somebody, making amends. It may be that somebody here has got a particular person in your life, a thorn in the flesh, at work, or in the neighborhood, or with the in-laws. And ask the Holy Spirit, we commit to doing this, not once and for all right now, but, but as a process, Holy Spirit, show me how to love them and hold a mirror up to expose what's going on, that they might change, that they might change. So Holy Spirit, would you now just be like Velcro on us? And as we leave here, stick to us. Remind us. Help us to guard our hearts, Holy Spirit. Father, help us to let go of cancer, spiritual cancer in our life. Lord, help us to not, to be free from the world's tree of knowledge of good and evil approach to life. Free us from declaring ourselves good over and against the evil we want to squash, but rather help us to see ourselves as ambassadors of Christ in every area of our life. Depollute us, Lord. I pray for every person in this congregation, Lord, set us free and release the kingdom life that is rightfully ours as an inheritance for what you did on, on the cross. It's our inheritance. How the enemy wants to kill, steal, and destroy, and that bugs me. Holy Spirit, just free us. Free us. Set the captives free from the bondage of everything that is not of you. I pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said one last time. Amen. The altar's open. If you, amen. The altar's open.